Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, Chief Creative Officer at Momentum. My guest today is Keith Cartwright, the President and Chief Creative Officer at Cartwright, the newly formed agency backed by WPP, which bears his name. Culminating in this new venture, Keith has enjoyed one of the really expansive careers in advertising. He made his bones at Tracy Locke and Ogilvy. As a creative director at TBWA Shiat Day, he helped his client Adidas win Advertiser of the Year at Cannes. As global creative director at Wyden Kennedy, he helped Jordan Brand push past $1 billion in sales for the first time. He served as SVP group creative director at the Martin Agency. In 2011, Keith co-founded his own shop in San Francisco called Union Made Creative, where he did breakthrough work for Nike, GE, and Lego. In 2016, he helped launch Saturday Morning, a collective built on using creativity to shift the negative perceptions in the African-American community. There he developed The Look, the acclaimed film for Procter & Gamble that took on the unconscious and conscious bias faced by black men in today's world. And finally, at the end of last year, Keith departed 72 and Sunny, where he served for two years as executive creative director, but not before winning an Emmy for Treatment Box, an experiential PSA that powerfully took on opioid addiction. He's been named Adweek's top 50 creatives in the business, and Campaign Magazine's top 10 most influential people in advertising. If you want to just feel really jealous, look up Keith Cartwright on Cargo Collective and just behold the range of work from the playful and hilarious to the poignant and emotional. This is the great and multifaceted Keith Cartwright and I talking to ourselves. Keith, what's up, man? How are you? How are you? I'm good. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. You're in sunny Los Angeles. No move required for this new job? No move required. <laughs> as long as LA's around, we'll be here. Did you still get the moving money? Because, <laughs> you know, if you were going to move, they would have given you some moving money. So I feel like, you know. Well, we were here and, and you know, because it's my company, I'd be paying myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. That's a great point. I start every one of these conversations in the same place, which is Keith Cartwright. Where are you from and what did your parents do? Uh, so I'm from Dallas, Texas. Um, that's where I was raised and spent most of my life. A little town called Duncanville, Texas. If I'm being, if I'm going to be more accurate. Uh, grew up there and and um, kind of honed my craft there and lived there most of my most of my adult life. I graduated high school uh, in San Diego, but that was the last two years of uh, before I went to college at Syracuse. Uh, my parents, my dad is a minister. And my mom is a speech pathologist. All right. So and when you uh, say hone, and when you say hone your craft, mm-hmm. what did twelve-year-old Keith want to be when he grew up? What was the dream when you were a kid? I, you know, I always, I always wanted to do something creative. I think, you know, I was asked this question not too long ago, and it boiled down to me just always wanting to make things. And I think, you know, I, I noticed it in my daughter it's not necessarily that she wants to draw or wants to create things in 3d. She just has this, this desire to make stuff. Yeah. And, um, and, and that, that passion leads you to the thing that ends up being your craft. So, um, I, I, I knew at a very young age that I was going to do something creative because it was a, it was a desire that I couldn't stop. And even if I wasn't doing this, I'd be doing something that that's in the, in this field to satisfy that, that desire. Yeah. How old your daughter? She's 11. 
Oh man. When I was a kid, I used to just take stacks of computer paper and I couldn't tell you why, but I would just take stacks mm-hmm. of computer paper and I would draw pictures out of sports illustrated and I would draw, yeah. you know, athletes. And it was just, it was a natural way to pass several hours of time. And now I see my kids naturally doing some of these things, their versions of the same things I would do as a kid. Mm-hmm. And it feels like you, you sort of see the same in your daughter. What are the things that she's doing that you look and go, shit, I instinctively was doing the same stuff around that age. Well, I'll tell you one thing, and I, this was not something that I was instinctively doing, but I, I tell this story. I, I remember coming home one day and I saw her digging through the kitchen trash can. And I'm like, what are you, like, we don't, we throw things away. That's trash. Like, what are you doing? That's trash. And she's like pulling out cups and small boxes and things. She's like, there's so much good stuff in here. I'm going to use it to make something. Right. And that's when it hit me. It's just like, you know, I, she, she is always looking for uh, a new way to create something new and different based off of some vision that she has. And those materials, we might've thrown them away, you know, like she's got to make sure that they're not in there. So I had that. I was, I was very much uh, like you, uh, you know, comic books and, and uh, just, I, you know, I was drawing, drawing my family members and, and did a lot of stuff that aligned with portraiture and illustration, which is what I went to school for originally. Um, and then that, that sort of shifted into graphic design, which got me into advertising. Portraiture. Do you have any yeah. portraits of friends and family that you made from a young age that are like hanging on your walls today? They're not on my walls. My parents wouldn't let me take them. They oh. keep them all. They kept them all from college and high school, but they have them all up. They're everywhere in the house. So your first week in advertising, Tracy Locke, Dallas, mm-hmm. Texas, 1998. Oh, you got um, it. You found it. <laughs> oh, I do research, bro. Uh, nice job. How might a colleague describe mm-hmm. a young Keith Cartwright in his first week on the job? Uh, you know, that was, you said it. It was my first job in advertising. I was very green. My, my core competency at that time was graphic design. So I saw myself as a as a fairly decent graphic designer, but as you as you and I both know, graphic design has elements of advertising, and good graphic design is conceptual, but it's different. There's differences, and that's why there are design firms, graphic design firms, and advertising agencies. Although they they sometimes blur the line. So I was really trying to understand, you know, this is twenty young twenty key, how to really take what I do and what I felt like I was really good at and sort of use it as my advantage in this new space. Um, and I think it worked because I didn't try to, you know, at that time, um, you know, it was a lot of print yeah. and it wasn't really, um, you know, and there was TV and that was kind of it. So I didn't know much about TV, but I knew that I could impress people with print because I could design it in a way that felt different than, you know, photograph, headline, body copy. So, that, that's what really helped me and, and built my book and, and really surprised a lot of people when they saw my book because it just didn't feel like everybody else. Was your father, the minister, supportive of your career path? Very. My parents, um, surprisingly, and it was so natural to me because they were always pushing me to do it. Um, even when I said, I want to go to art school, they were like, okay, great. You know, there was never any hesitation they always, you know, wanted me to draw. When I, when I, the way that they would punish me uh, when I was younger was they would tell me I can't draw. It was like, you, no drawing, you can't, like, no, taking all your pencils and your art supplies. 
And that was more torturous than not being able to go play or watch TV. Because that's what I did most of the time. Yeah. In any of your, your first few jobs, early on, is there one mentor you look back on in particular who helped sort of define the governing, the governing principles for what makes a great idea to you? I think it started before that. I think I, I really learned the idea of sort of conceptual marketing communications and conceptual design from uh, my professor in college. Yeah. Um, he's the one uh, who really sort of lit a fire and and made got me really, really excited about this idea of communication design. Uh, and he, he really drove the, the ideology of concept, what it means and why it's important. And if you have an idea, be it a design or a painting or anything, without a real strong uh, conceptual basis, then it's then it's 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 going to pass away, and it's not going to be something that has any longevity, and it's not going to resonate with the people that you share it with. Um, and then he really opened me up to all these masters who I didn't know about in the space that I was fascinated by, you know, uh, Bradbury Thompson and. Um, you know, uh, Paul Rand and, you know, uh, the, 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 the people who in the design world in the 60s and 70s, you know, Herb Luballin, uh, who really lit me up and showed me that this is this is a form of art that um, I'm, I can get into. And it, I didn't feel like I was missing out on the thing that I went to school for. I, I still could do that. But this was, I think, additive for me. And I, and I felt like I was pretty good at it. That's beautiful. When you ended up at Shiat, forgive my my timeline here. Uh, did you overlap with Jerry? Is Jerry Graff the guy who hired you? No, I was with Chuck McBride in San Francisco. So, you know, he's another one who I hold up as a mentor. You know, I learned I learned a lot from him. Um, he was, um, you know, anyone who's worked with him knows he's he was kind of he was kind of the creator of creative directors. I mean, yeah. if you look at his, his, his legacy of people who worked under him, a lot of them have gone on to do great things. And I, think, I don't think you'd find one person who didn't attribute um, you know, his, his leadership as something that you could aspire to and something that we took from in order to learn how to be um, who we are now as, as leaders in the field. Uh, but, I, but I did work with Jerry, and uh, Jerry was running New York at the time. Uh, it was a special time at Shiat. And um, Jerry was running the New York office. Chuck was running San Francisco. And, um, and I think, some, I mean, it was the years of Impossible is Nothing and all that great work for Sprint. And Lee Cloud was still involved. So it was just like, it was a master class in, um, in, in marketing and advertising. I've talked to people from that era of Shia Day who said, you know, that, that is the era if, uh, of if you don't come in on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Sunday. And uh, you can't say stuff like that anymore at agencies. It still does yeah. happen, but you can't celebrate it in the way that you used to. You know, I'm a Crispin Porter guy, so I grew up yeah. taking great pride in in uh, the sweatshop approach to work. Uh, are yeah. you sort of the same? Are you someone who's like, I mean, do you take well, pride in the fact that early in your career, there wasn't a lot of off days? Well, I, I, I look at it like this, you know, you, you, you want to create an environment where people feel like if they're not there, they're missing out, not in a bad way, but missing out on something fun, exciting, and different, right? It's a place where you want to go and a place that you want to hang out at because it's satisfying whatever it is about this business that you love. 
And if you can create that environment, it no longer becomes about come in on Sunday and come in on Saturday. You're working. And then we live in a different world, right? So back then, we weren't as digital and as remote as we are now. We weren't able to do Zoom calls like this and get work done. And COVID has really shown the capabilities and the stretch that we have today to get work done remotely. So I think in this new world, there's an ability to you know, work, um, to get work done, but still at least find some time um, with your family, which is restorative. I think I, I'm also, you know, it's, it's incredibly important that you spend time with your family. And, and beyond that, spend time with yourself. Put everything down. Rest. Go gather more information in the world and, and, and sort of, you know, light, light up your creative juices again. Because without that, you're not as useful to anybody, clients, our business, or yourself. Yeah, I love hearing you say that. I think there's this misconception that in our industry, it's sort of creativity versus data. When yeah. it comes to the creative person or the strategic person, data is going to a museum. That's accumulating data. Data is going to see a great independent film. Data is, yeah. is just taking in inputs. Well, I just want to say one thing on that I think is important because data is a big part of our industry now. And I do think it's wildly important that we find the best ways to use data. Um, but data means nothing without causation, right? I can have all the numbers and I can understand all the data. But you can carve data a thousand different ways. The thing that you really want to get to the bottom of is why. Why is this happening? Why is this, this, this data yielding this way? And what you can do with that information is actually create something useful to the market, to, you, to the people who are, are, are taking in sort of whatever product or business or service that you're trying to sell, um, so that they can see how they can apply it to their own lives. But just to put up a stat, it's not enough. Right. Yeah. And the why gets to the human condition, which is certainly for me, the, the part of the job that turned me on right from the get go, you know, and mm -hmm. I feel like as, as techniques change, as technology changes, as the role of data changes, the part that sort of remains the same is sort of the human motivation at the heart of it. You know? Yeah. Exactly. You and I both grew up on Nike ads. I'm going to assume um, Nike ads are certainly yeah. important for me growing up. I've had a lot of former Wyden people on this show. You ran Jordan brand out of Wyden, New York. Mm -hmm. My question to you, when you first step into those hollowed halls and get your first sort of big crack at a Nike brief or a Jordan brief, do you recall mm -hmm. feeling the pressure of trying to live up to all the legendary Nike work that came before you? Can you sort of feel the ghosts in the hall when you show up to that job? Yeah, you do. <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, it's not immediate, you know, you walk in and, uh, you know, Wyden specifically, I was going to Wyden and Kennedy, but I was also working on, I'd argue, the most storied brand in their history, right? Yeah. I'd argue that the Jordan brand not only launched Nike, but it did a hell of a lot for Wyden and Kennedy too, right? And to be given the responsibility of carrying that on and finding ways to do different work that doesn't feel like it's, you know, an, an iteration of what they've already done um, was daunting. But I was such a huge fan of the brand and such a huge fan of, of, of the man. Um, I was I was just I was so excited to work on it. I, I, there was nothing that was going to stop me from um, trying to figure it out. And it was one. It was some of the most fun I've ever had in the business. I mean, not just for working on the brand, but the people that I worked with there are still my friends today, and and they're, they've gone on to do great things. But it was just an incredible moment in time. 
I'm going to tell you, Keith, I was texting with our mutual friend, Desmond Marzette, who Des, ran, yeah. he ran brand Jordan after yeah. you guys didn't overlap, but I, I was just texting yeah. him, telling him I was preparing to interview you. And I said, you know, Des, with all due respect to all the great work that you did on brand Jordan for my money, the great brand Jordan campaign, just for my personal taste is Leroy Smith, which is <laughs> Charlie Murphy as this character who claimed to sort of teach Michael Jordan everything he knew in high school. And yeah. some could argue it's sort of Charlie Murphy is maybe his second funniest thing he ever did besides <laughs> true Hollywood stories on Chappelle show. Yeah. I just wonder yeah. if you could give me a, a memory or a story about work, working with Charlie Murphy. Ah, uh, that moment. Um, yeah, I can. I mean, so, you know, we, we came up with the idea of creating, you know, a, a, the real life character, but through the lens of a spoof through, through uh, Charlie Murphy and, you know, Leroy Smith was a real human. Leroy Smith did actually motivate Michael Jordan. Leroy Smith was the person in Michael Jordan's life who beat him out his freshman year on varsity. And he used that as fuel. And if you watch the, the, the latest documentary on the Bulls and Michael, you realize that that's, that's the fire that yeah. he needs and uses and has used his whole career. He's taken everything so, personally his whole life. Yeah, his whole life. So, uh, you know, he did check in the hotels and write Leroy Smith. Like, that was a real thing. So we're like, okay, we can take this one of two ways. We can, we can be very serious about it and, and talk about motivation. Um, or we can shift the brand and, and have uh, a little bit more fun with, you know, this story right before he goes into the Hall of Fame and, and make it sort of, a, we originally thought of it as a, just a side campaign because we were still doing all the Become Legendary work. And, uh, and it just took off. And once we got Charlie in there and we got him in, in costume, he just, it was just, it just became him. I've never laughed so hard on set. And he was telling us stories uh, about his life, which is amazing, right? Because his life is, in some ways, Eddie Murphy's life. And, um, you know, he told this one story of, uh, <laughs> of hanging out with Stevie Wonder. And he said he goes into a boxing gym and Stevie Wonder is in there boxing. <laughs> and he's like moving and dodging and boxing. And, I, you know, it's just and he did it in his, you know, true Hollywood stories kind of way. And everyone's cracking up. And, you know, I, I we, we all kind of got together when we found out Charlie passed away. And uh, we were kind of sharing images that didn't get out and talk, talking about the, the shoot and the experience. But it was by far um, one of the best experiences of my, my career. That's beautiful, man. And, I, and I'm telling people in the intro to go and look at your Cargo Collective and, and, and click on that because there's so much content there. There was so much that was created. There's such a depth there. And it's pretty interesting to work on a brand like Jordan. And I think it speaks a lot to your career. We'll come back to this, but you know, Jordan brand is a brand that's allowed to be incredibly emotional and incredibly serious, but also a brand that started with Mars Blackman and also has permission to be silly and irreverent. And I see in your work throughout your career, you sort of have a, uh, a similar range. Um, is that something that you took pride in is, Hey, I, if I make something funny, I want the next thing to be serious. I want to prove that I can do the thing you haven't seen me do yet. Or maybe were you not so calculated and it just sort of happened that way organically? Um, yeah, I, it starts with, you know, this is going to sound cliche, but it starts with the brief. And I think we look at what's going on in that space and what's the most poignant way to make our point. Right. 
and a way and look at how to do it in a way that doesn't feel expected, um, that comes off audacious, and something that you have to pay attention to, right, and share. So I I think when it came to you know the Jordan brand, that's one of the reasons why we zagged and did Charlie Murphy because we were doing all this reverential work about become legendary and Michael on the Mount, and uh, it's like all right, maybe it's time for us to have a little fun to show that this brand has has range, and I think any good brand. Um, should be able to do that. Tone, tone is directional. It's based on who you are as a company, but it doesn't mean you always have to be one note. You know? Yeah. So you know, it was my, in my career, yeah, it, not not as calculated, but um, I I do I do want to make sure that in my I did want to make sure and I do want to make sure in my career that people didn't just see my work as as one one note having one tone wanted to be able to uh, show range. And we'll come back to that. You know, having worked at CPB in Boulder, I recall the move from New York to Boulder was not an easy transition for everybody. And I'm going to guess the same is true of the move from New York to Richmond or San Francisco to Richmond, Virginia. Tell me a little bit about what attracted you to the Martin agency when you made that shift. Yeah. You know, I was, I was, um, I had done quite a bit at, at Wyden. I'd done work that I was proud of, and I, I, I was ready to try something else. And you know, the Martin Agency—they—they have—they have a great reputation. I mean, the Geico work and the stuff they've done for um, the John F. Kennedy um, Foundation—incredible work. And but the, the city and the town was not something that was ever on my radar. Uh, there was a guy there by the name of John Norman, who's a former Wyden guy. Yep, he was there. Um, and we, we, you know, we hit it off and we were very like-minded and I, I, I went over there and, and decided to try to do some work to help out on what he was trying to build. And, um, I enjoyed my time there. You know, I, I think if you ask my wife and I agree that Richmond wasn't really for us at the time. Um, you know, but I think our times there, we, we really, really valued it and we, we enjoyed our our time there and, and don't look, look on it as, a, as anything less than a great experience for, for me and my family. And then the first agency that you ever created was called Union Collective. And we're going to get more to Cartwright, but I just wonder, was there any, looking back, was there any key lesson or two from starting your first agency that maybe made starting your second agency a little smoother? Yeah. I mean, you know, People have asked me why am I doing it again, and I don't think you really have a choice if you have an entrepreneurial spirit, right? If you want to, you have that in you, and you have a vision, and you want to go out and create something that is a business, and you feel like that vision is something that you think people will resonate with, um, it's it's innate. So starting my first business, um, which you know we did it for four years, um, you know I think I think it was a success, especially starting from nothing. But to your point, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Um, you know, how to start a business on your own. You know, I, I bootstrapped that thing start to finish. Um, how to start a business on your own, how to um, sort of manage all the elements of sort of all the things that happen behind the scenes, i.e. legal and accounting and, and, and really paying attention to your P&L and your balance sheet. And at the same time, trying to balance the work and making sure that your reputation and what you put out into the world um, is seen as a, a representation of what you're trying to build and who you are. Um, so I, it, it was an incredible, I, I call it grad school for me, um, in 
the business because you 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 look at clients differently, you you sort of feel their concerns and business problems in a different way, um, and I can now appeal to those concerns as a business owner um, in a way that was different than when I was just a you know creative just wanting to make a cool app. Yeah. So that is something that definitely um, was an incredible learning lesson and something that's carried over to what I'm doing now. See, that's what fascinates me is, you know, for a guy like you who works at all of these great legendary agencies, I think one thing that those agencies have in common is that they protect the creatives from the business so that the creatives really don't have to worry about much except ideas and and, and execution. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a real freedom in that, you know? Um, Right. But then as you make that transition into understanding P&Ls and balance sheets, I'm guessing you weren't questioning your creative acumen by that point, but in starting your first business, did you have any insecurities about your business acumen or your ability to sort of get up to speed quickly on the business side? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I was learning, I was, we were building the plane where we were flying it. And, um, but you know, I was crazy enough to think that, I could figure it out, you know, and I think, I think most business owners probably go into it thinking they know. And then when you get into it, you're like, Oh my God, there's so much I don't know. Um, but I better learn or this is going to fail. And it's that, it's that fire that I think pushes all good business people, um, to move and act at a, a, at a rate and a speed and a level of accuracy. The ones who succeed, yeah. Um, that is is kind of shocking and amazing um, to witness. So anyone who's worked at a startup can kind of see it and feel it. It's like it is the highest highs and the lowest lows. It is there are moments of just like complete joy and adulation, and moments where you're like, I don't know if we're going to make payroll in third days, right? And you go through that roller coaster, and you start to realize, a, you, you, we we can figure this out. We've gotten through so many things. So when the next thing comes you know, the anxiety gets a little lower, the confidence gets a little higher. And if you continue to build, um, you wake up one morning with an incredible story. In the lead up to Cartwright, you leave 72 and sunny at the end of last year. And it's pretty astounding. In just two years at 72, I mean, you do two huge Super Bowl campaigns for the NFL. You do a huge campaign for Call of Duty. You do Treatment Box, which I would say is, you know, one of the best experiential ideas of the past decade. And that's just really a busy two years, Keith. Uh, have you had time to reflect on that two years at 72? I mean, things have been moving pretty quickly for you the last five months, I would think. Uh, no, I, it's a blessing and a curse. I, I'm really bad at doing that. Um, my wife gets on me all the time. I don't really take it in as much as I probably should. Even now, you know, there's been an incredible outpouring of love and support for the Cartwright. Um, and it's, you know, but we're so busy and we got so much going on and I want to make sure that things are moving. And I just, I haven't been able to really sit back and think about it. Um, but I also have a belief that, you know, as much as I love that work and I'm so proud of it, I'm so interested in what the next thing is, you know, and I'm really, really focused on how this next thing can be the best thing that I've ever done. And I, and I, I do believe that any good creative person has that mentality uh, because they do believe that the, the next thing is the best thing that they'll ever do, right? Um, so that's a that's a that's a, a, a motivation that I, I tell people when they ask me, 
you know, how do you stay driven? Well, don't, don't, don't fall back on your laurels. Don't, don't feel like you've already done a thing that's, you know, the thing that defines you because there's always something better and there's always something bigger. Um, and if you focus on that, you'll wake up when your career is really over <laughs> and you'll be able to sit back and say, wow, I, I um, think I did a good job. I think the thing that really separates a good creative of which there are many from the really special creatives who have the type of book that, you know, you have is, and you can feel it in your book is just, you know, there's a lot of great opportunities in this industry to make a good thing or a couple good things. And I think there's a tendency among some in our industry who are talented people to make that thing, to want that thing so bad. And then once you get it to sort of breathe a sigh of relief and feel like, Hey, you know what, maybe the pressure is off of me now for a year or two. Like I got there, I'm going to enjoy this. And you know, I've made it to the mountaintop and, and I can maybe, I can, I can relax a little bit. And what I see in your career is just very little relaxation. I think that speaks to it. It's just, you're, you don't seem to be a particularly nostalgic guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you can, uh, I think you can get yourself in trouble. Um, when you start believing your own press and your own, your own hype, because you know, those, those things come and go and you have a good day and a bad day. I think, I think where you can keep, keep stay out of trouble is if you um, sort of put the pressure on yourself constantly. Focus more on the things that you want to make better about your business or your, yourself or the business that you're working for. Because those challenges are what's fun, right? Can I achieve this? Can I, can I, can I make this thing work? Can I, can I defy what this person is saying about either me or my company or, or the brand? Um, can we solve this business problem in a way that uh, will we'll, we'll shock the world and make people stand up and pay attention to it. So those, those, are, those challenges are always going to be there. And as long as you feel inspired to go after those things, um, you'll, you'll continue to make great work, I think. You know what's so poetic about what you just said is that while you were ex- explaining it, your, e- your inbox of your email is just getting lit up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's <laughs> okay. It's okay. Wow. I, think it's, I think it actually drives the point across beautifully. It's funny. But you know what? It, it brings us to uh, a broader conversation. You know, we've touched on a few of the stops that you had, and, and there was also a stop at Ogilvy in there, and, you know, about a half dozen places from coast to coast. And, and it brings us to a broader conversation, I think, about changing jobs in advertising, you know, which is really more of a revolving door than the typical industry. And, mm-hmm. and on the one hand, you know, I think there's a desire for some to, you want to stay at one place, you want to prove you can build something, you want to show resilience. And on the other hand, you know, I'm sort of reminded of the words of, of Rick Ross, who says, you know, honor your position by plotting your promotion. Uh, what's your philosophy on, on what makes the time right to pursue a new job? Um, I, you know, I, I can't speak for everybody because I think I find a lot of uh, respect for those people who have stayed at places and helped grow their, those businesses. Right. I mean, they're, you know, Hal Curtis, but, you know, I, I, I have, you know, although we've only met once or twice, I have a, a huge amount of respect for him and his work and what he's done at Wyden and Kennedy. And, um, you know, I know that that's, that obviously that's not, that hasn't been my path. Um, so I would say if, if you feel like you're the kind of person who has found their home and you feel welcome and you want to grow it and they're giving you the ability to do it and you can find new challenges 
over the course of 10, 15, 20 years every day, then do that. You know? um, but if you're the kind of person who wants to go out and you know, see other experiences and how other people think about this business and learn under different creator, creative directors and creators and learn different business philosophies, if that excites you, um, when you feel like you've had enough at where you are, then you should move and, and go try something else. You know, I, I always say this when people, you know, when, when creatives come to me and they quit or they're, you know, they're going to tell me, hey, I, you know, like I found a job and I'm sorry and, you know, I, I wanted to stay here, but I just couldn't. And, you know, I would say, like, look, I am happy for you. If you feel like, although I'll miss you and, and for the most part, you know, your contribution, miss your contribution, but if you feel like you're at that place where you need to move on, you're probably not going to be giving your best anyway, right. <laughs> right? So it is probably better for you to go on and try that new thing, and and let's stay in touch and and you know be gracious about it because that person is going off and and growing and learning and and trying to find and explore what it is about them uh, that lights them up. You can't get in the way of that. You can't get angry about people's people's journey. It's not yours. It's there. It's so hypocritical that when we when we leave jobs, we expect that response. But right. I don't know for you, may, early on for me, early on when creatives would come and, and tell me they were resigning, it was hard not to take it personally. And then finally, you have to yeah. look in the mirror and go, hey, man, you know, if you if you're expect, you know, yeah, they want the same thing out of their careers that you wanted out of yours. That's right. That's right. I was going to ask you, though, because, you know, the process of resigning the process of specifically of that day when you walk into your boss's office, you know, just thinking about it makes people really nervous and gets their hands sweaty. And even if you've done it before, it's sort of nerve wracking yeah. and, and um, it's a thing that's easy to botch if you've never done it before. You've had a lot of practice resigning to some industry greats. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, and then you've also been on the other side of it where creatives that you love who you've uh, right. you know, nurtured and taught a lot to sort of took that knowledge and said, thanks for this. Now I'm going to go, you know, double my salary right. and continue on my career. Do you have any yeah. advice for a young creative on the best way to resign? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the best way to resign is to be respectful of, of the business that you're at. And there's a couple ways to do that. Um, be honest and transparent about why you're leaving. Cause that's helpful for the business to know and understand what it is or what it was that, that the environment that they weren't creating for you, right? Um, make sure that you aren't bailing on them if they were good to you and leaving them holding the bag. Give them enough time to, you know, at least figure out how to create something around what you were doing so that they don't lose business and it doesn't hurt them. Uh, I think that's just respectful. Like, be, be thoughtful about, they were thoughtful about bringing you in, be thoughtful about leaving and making sure that, um, but you know, they're not left holding the bag. Um, you know, I think that's important. And, you know, with like the speech and when you go in and, you know, you're talking to them and you're telling them like, Hey, you know, it's time to go, you know, um, you know, don't beat around the bush. Like, I, I think you gotta, you gotta sit down and, and say to whoever your manager is, eye to eye, like, Hey, listen, um, this is what I wasn't getting. Um, this is why I'm leaving. This is an opportunity that I can't pass up. And I hope you understand. It's not personal. 
and I wish you guys well. I hope you wish me well. That's good That's advice. It. That's good advice. And that brings us to the present day. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the inception of Cartwright. Yeah. So, you know, like I was saying earlier, I then, you know, you have an entrepreneurial spirit. And even though you go back into uh, the work world and you work at a company, that doesn't just go away, right? Those things, those things stick in your head. It's one of the reasons why Saturday morning exists and why we have that nonprofit. Um, it's, it's a business and we, and that, that feels good. Like making, building a business to me feels good. But beyond that, um, I, I felt like there was a response, there was a, there was a responsibility that I had to, for myself to create something, um, on my, on my own based on a vision that I had, uh, in and around the way that I felt like creativity could affect business and this idea of creative audacity and that the kind of work that I think that brings and, and the kind of work that I think I can bring to clients with that philosophy to me was an, it was an important message. One that I thought would resonate and be attractive to clients. And so I, I had to do it. Um, the model that, I went into it with is very intentional. What I didn't want to do was create um, uh, the same model that I had at Union Make Creative. I wanted to create a model that allowed me to scale and contract. Right? I think there's value in being small, but there's also value in being very big when you need it. Right? And to have the ability to um, to contract and scale at will without it diminishing or hurting or damaging your bottom line is I think a good business model and WPP got on board with that. And so what we've built is uh, a model where I can bring in very high level creative and business minds, strategic minds, um, and be very, very close to the client. And if the client has an ask, even if it's a temporary ask to that they need strategy help in five or six different countries, I don't have to run out and hire those people. For, for something that might be you know, short term. I can pull from a network and, and, and utilize the network in a way that is advantageous to the client, advantageous to me, and helps build the, the, this sort of you know, contract, um, you know, condensed contract uh, model that I think is a, a, an interesting model for the future, especially now that we're in doing way more project work. It, it, what I found at Union Made Creative was it was hard to scale when most of my clients were projects, right? Because yeah. you don't know if they're going to be there tomorrow. And you end up having to hire um, a lot of people uh, to satisfy something that might just be six months. And if they decide that they go, they're going to go away, what do you do, right? Um, so that's hard. And then there's all the things that exist back of house um, that require you to have full-time staff from business affairs to accounting and legal. And so, you know, you can lean into that um, on the WP. I can lean into that on the WPP side and utilize those people uh, when I need them and, you know, pay them a cost, but don't necessarily have to go out and hire these people full-time. So that's going to shift and change as we get bigger and bigger. I'm going to have to eventually bring in a lot more full-time people um, for those things but I can do it at my own pace, right? I'm not forced to do it all at once, which becomes a very dangerous proposition. 
Well, what's fascinating to me is like, it's one thing to do that if you've been working at a WPP agency for the last decade and you sort of have, you have this deep well of relationships with, you know, senior colleagues all around the world. And so, you know, when that call comes in for a thing that's North America and Brazil, you know exactly who to call, but right. you know, that's not the case with you. So have the past three months just been having virtual meetings with your new colleagues around the world, just starting to develop some relationships? Yeah. That that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of luck involved. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm leaning into the Great Global Group um, for that for partnership, and they have fantastic people there, and they are, have been absolutely supportive, and open, and kind, and helpful. And you know, look, I, I got I got lucky in that regard to find um, that level of support and those kinds of people who were just willing, ready, and able to help um, whenever we needed them. So it, it, there's still a little luck involved, you know, um, and I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to. And then, you know, look, COVID, um, you know, we were born a month before COVID. So there was a whole different model <laughs> of press release and all this stuff before this. Um, but what COVID did was, since we were born into it, it forced us to work in a different way. And now we don't know any other way to work. It's become part of our culture. So even if this lasts another three months or three years, I think there's going to be things that I'm going to keep in this model and utilize as business practice, because I think it's better than the old model and how we've been working and more effective um, than the old model and how we've been working. I think a lot of agencies had to tear down the model and rebuild something very quickly because they've been working a certain way the whole time. We didn't have to do that. And as you talk, you know, you talk a lot about audacity. I love that word. Um, I love that description of your approach to creativity. And I think of audacity as sort of standing in opposition to compromise. And I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's sort of two schools of creative thought when selling ideas. One is, the agency brings a lot of ideas and said, and says, Hey, tell us what you like and we can make anything among what we brought you here. Great. And the other yeah. school of thought is we brought you one thing or we brought you two things. We didn't bring you a ton of things because part of what you're paying for us for is our conviction and our taste. I'm guessing you fall into that second camp. Is that, would that be an accurate statement? Well, well, if I'm being, if I'm being honest, I've done both, but I think there's a way to do iterations that's different than, what most people do. So if I'm going to come in and show more than one idea, um, and this is this goes back to sort of my design background, there's this there's this, there's a Paul Rand school of presentation, where he would he would show the clients where he started with his thought process, right? And it's a fully fleshed out idea, but then he walks them through why that didn't work for him or why that idea may not be perfect, or why this next idea is even more interesting. And that, that, that allows you to kind of take the client through the process with you, because they're not there. They don't have all those moments where they're sort of knowing and understanding why you didn't do something, right? Uh, in fact, when you show them an idea, they might be asking, why didn't you do what I'm thinking of right now? But if you can walk them through your process with ideas, and get to the one that you want to sell, that can be very, very effective too. Um, I mean, we always go in with a recommendation uh, and we do everything we can to lead the client to that recommendation. 
Um, but and we never bring anything in because you never know. A client might be like, "Yeah, that's great, but we like the first one." You never want to bring in anything that you don't love. The audacity comes in all those ideas. There, it, it, everything we share needs to have a level of audaciousness to it. And you can't discount the fact that the client is living it every day, right? So what I think I know, and trust me, we'll we'll be studied up and we'll go in smart and. Um, we're gonna, we, you know, we're we're gonna show relevancy and and, and depth of, of understanding of their brand, but we don't live every day like they do. We're marketing professionals, and we know what we do, and we know what's gonna cut through. But they may provide some insight on something in those, at least in those early meetings, that might shift something, and and that's where you need to be a little bit more open-minded about uh, the ideas you bring in. Now, I'm I'm not a component of bringing in a hundred ideas or, or even. I think that's that's when you just seem indecisive, yeah. and you don't know what you want. But but to my, my my earlier point, I think there's there's a way to go in with one idea when there's conviction and you know absolutely that this is the only thing they need because of conversations, or or to go in and kind of walk them through the process and explain to them why we got here. And you brought up the the, the notion of luck, and and luck is a thread I think through every great career. One way in which you're lucky is that you have a really nice catchy last name that makes for a good namesake agency. Uh, but you know, of course, um, the thing about naming an agency after you is that if shit goes haywire, everyone knows exactly who to blame. Right. Uh, was it, was it Cartwright from the start? Uh, kind of, you know, I, I, it was in my head and, um, you know, I thought I wrote down some other names too and, um, that I won't share. Um, but I said, you know what the, I want to, I want to put it on the line. This, this, at this point in my career, I want to be accountable. And there's only one way to do that. And aside from that, you know, I said this in, the, in my, my original press release. Um, I, I've, I very much recognize that I'm fortunate enough in this business to be a symbol um, because I'm African-American. And, and you know and I know there aren't a lot of us in this business, certainly not in leadership. So, you know, I, I do a lot of talks and interviews and, you know, there's a lot of outreach, especially through Saturday morning um, with the community. But, I can, you know, obviously I won't be able to reach out to everyone and, and neither can my, co, my co-founders at Saturday morning. But for me with Cartwright, if someone can just see that it's possible just by seeing that picture of me and my name on the door, um, people of all colors, not just black, but people of all colors, uh, might be able to take that and say, I can do it too. Yeah, I think that's true. You you are not just a leader in this industry, but you are, uh, you know, a symbol of an, of an incredibly successful and esteemed black leader in our industry. And, you know, look, maybe by coincidence, maybe by fate, you are starting your own agency in the midst of what we hope is a cultural awakening, um, which is going to have implications for society as a whole and and certainly for our industry. I wonder if the events of the past few months in any way have sort of changed mid-stride how you've thought about the vision of your company in relationship to what's happening socially right now. You know, it hasn't, and I'll tell you why. Because I and people who look like me have been living with it our whole lives. So this is not new to us. I was, I, you know, I... I my, my, my um, mindset um, and 
how I how I knew I had to show up when I when I created this business is the same before George Floyd and will be the, and is the same after because my lot in this world hasn't changed. People are just paying attention now. Right. So you know I, what I what I do love and appreciate is that this movement feels like it's 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 sinking in, and I hope it continues to sink in. But I think you you ask anyone of color who's you know who's attuned to what's going on, they'll tell you like we've we've been dealing with this burden forever, and it's not. It's not new to us, and, and, and in fact, we're a little surprised that they're surprised, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I think to answer your question, no, I, I, I know I have to operate and move. Um, I knew I had to operate and move in a certain way, and I continue to have to do that after. I just hope that now uh, it opens it up a bit more so that it, the pressure of, of being a person of color in America is is the valve is is let up a little bit day by day yeah and, and i mean you said it look in the marches of the late 60s those images show black people marching and today yeah. you see black people and people of all colors marching and and right. it feels like the movement is going mainstream and i think that's a source for optimism yes. i i did i just got to tell you as an aside i was randomly watching do the right thing last week i had not seen it since i was a kid yeah. And I don't know what if you have a memory of that movie, but the end of, of that movie ends with Radio Rahim getting killed by police brutality, and then all yeah. of the characters in Brooklyn standing up and naming the, you know, George Floyd's and Eric Gardner's of 1990. And I'm thinking about that, and I'm like, to say nothing of you know Emmett Till 50 years earlier, it's like yeah. this is not <laughs> this is not a new phenomenon. It's just a, a new awareness level. That's right. Um, I also wanted to ask you about this. I mean, I, I see a contradiction in our industry. On the one hand, we want more diversity and inclusion because it's the right thing to do. But I think maybe the point that some people miss is the competitive advantage of more diversity and inclusion. It's like black culture is a primary driver of pop culture and agencies purport to be in the business of infiltrating pop culture, creating pop culture. And yet black people are underrepresented at all those same agencies. And by the way, you know, my agency is not an exception to that. You've worked across the best agencies in the world. I just wonder like, what are the common threads you've, you've observed um, about why this breakdown in diversity occurs? You know, I, I, I don't know. I do know why. Um, you know, and it's, it boils down to just a lack of empathy and understanding of, of culture and who we are and what we stand for and, and, a, and an inability to want to learn more about it. I mean, that's, it boils down to just people, people aren't interested in finding out more about um, how, how to change this thing. If you want to change something, you change it, right? And if you're in a place of power, you change it. It's, it's, not, it's not complicated. Um, but I think to your earlier point, that's the thing that I that drives me crazy is that you need diverse perspectives, right? In order for you to unlock something different. If you always have the same perspective on something, if everybody is from the same town and they've listened to the same music or they they have the same upbringing, you can get the same ideas, and you're only going to appeal to that set of people, right? 
But if you bring in different cultures with different experiences, um, with different outlooks on life, you know, and you put those people together, you're going to unlock something so much better, so much more interesting, something different. We're always looking for that thing that's different. I've seen that before. Uh, that was done 10 years ago. Uh, we can't do that again. You know, this agency did that. or uh, you know, we're, we're not doing that. We did that last year. Or is there a different way to write that line because that feels like this thing? That, that problem is based on lack of perspective and a different outlook from different people, from different parts of the world or who have different upbringings from different cultures. So it does blow my mind that people don't get that because it not only does it, I mean, this is a Harvard business, there's, there's a Harvard business review about it that goes into detail that when your company is more diverse, you make more money, you make more money. There's, there's a, there's a, there's a financial implication to doing it, but for some reason that's still not enough. So, um, you know, that is, that is a drum I'll beat obviously at my company and, and to anyone who asks, it's just like, try it. I, yeah. I, I guarantee you, you'll benefit from it. We seem to share optimism about the mainstreaming of awareness that's happening across the country. Mm-hmm. Does that optimism for you extend to the responses that you've been seeing early on from brands and from agencies? Yeah. You know, I'm hopeful. I, you know, if I'm being honest, I feel like a lot of brands, put a message out on, on Instagram just so they wouldn't get lambasted. You know, it was like, shall we support so-and-so and let's, let's throw some money at it. Um, the real test is going to be what action they put out right in the coming months. Are they going to change leadership within their company? Are they going to, are they going to analyze, look at their board? Um, are they going to change their marketing practices? to be more inclusive, but they get more thoughtful of those things. That's how companies and businesses can really show up and demonstrate that we actually care about what's going on. We understand it, it, it's okay to come out and say that we, we were wrong or we didn't know or fine. That's, that's okay. As long as you are focused on tomorrow now, um, because you know, I, I, the, the, the world isn't waiting anymore. Everybody's fed up. Shifting back to your work, I, you know, we touched a little bit on your range of creativity and that, that sort of that drive of what's next. And uh, so I just wanted to sort of come into the process early on of getting to an idea that excites you or that moves you. When you pinpoint a great idea, uh, whether you hear it from a creative in the room, whether you think of it yourself, whether it sort of bubbles up naturally through an organic um, creative conversation, can you just describe that feeling like what does it feel like when you know you're onto something? Um, it's obvious. And everyone who sees it sort of has that same reaction, right? It just feels like, and that doesn't mean it's easy to digest or, you know, if you hire the right people, you're going to be like-minded and good work first of all. Right. And when you present an idea or you have an idea up there, uh, it becomes very obvious. And then the next thing that happens is people can't stop talking about ways to build on it. To imp- not, not just to improve it and make it better, but just to add to it. And I, I like to sit back when we're presenting ideas uh, in the early stages and brainstorming and kind of feel the room and see where the excitement is. Yeah. If people are just talking and they can't get off of it. And they, they want to go back to it and they keep referring to it. Or even the next day, if, if it's, a, if it's a, a platform line or, or 
or, or an idea line and, and they, they keep bringing it back up, then you know you have something that's sticky and you, you just keep going after that. And then what you learn from that is what is it about this idea that is interesting? Because maybe there's more thinking along these lines that'll bring about something else um, that's even better. Yeah. And you, I mean, you started in this industry as an originator uh, or as the source of great ideas. That's what you were being paid to do. And as you work your way up the ladder, you continue to, to do that while sim- simultaneously managing larger teams. Now, as you've made that transition from the creative source, which you still are, but, but also to a manager um, and mm-hmm. to a nurturer of talent, how mindful do you need to be to not be unfairly biased towards your own ideas and to make sure to sort of leave room for others um, as you build a creative team around you? Accountability is the key word there. I think you want to hire people and give them the accountability um, to do what it is you hired them to do. You can't build a business. I can't build a business, even though my name is on the door, if, you know, my, my sole goal is to always be in the middle of every single thing. Right. Um, you know, in the early days, you, you need to be a part of it because you're building the culture. You're sort of um, teaching the ideology and, and, and giving people an understanding of what expectations are. But as you see that people start to get it, you recede and you give them accountability so that they can bring in what it is that you hired them to do. Right. They can bring in their special sauce to what it is, what it is that you've set up and their, their genius and their superpowers. Uh, and then they, then they, their confidence kicks in and they grow it and it becomes their own. So I think, you know, you want to hire the best people. You want to give them the accountability to do what it is that they do. Uh, and then you want to build a business and, and not some lab where I'm the you know, sole proprietor of ideas and information that that's unsustainable. That's not how you build. That's not how you build something. Yeah. You want to be able to step back and say, everyone's clicking and this culture that we've built here at Cartwright is based on the fact that really, really smart people believe in your ideal and your mission and and, and the way that you approach creativity. You learned from a set of masters from the last generation and you've become a master of this generation. And, and that last generation we talked about brought with it a certain, um, a certain work ethic and pride in long hours that has, there's been a shift and we talked about, you know, being able to carve out time for yourself. And you seem like from our you know, hour together here, a gentle soul. Uh, are you someone who worries about being too hard on people or worries more about being too soft on people? Uh, there's two ways to manage fear and love. That's it. People are either going to work hard because they're afraid of you. Right. And they, you know, they don't want to feel the wrath. Or they're going to work hard because they don't want to let you down, right? And because they they really really um, believe that by letting you down, it's going to hurt them. And both of both, if you really think about it psychologically, you know, it's it's based in pain, right? You know, I don't want to feel the pain of this person, or I don't want to feel internal pain because I've let someone down. Um, you know, I think I'm I'm obviously from the second school. I I want to. I feel like this is my personal belief and I know there are other managing styles, but I personally feel like when you create an environment where um, you set up expectations and you hold people accountable to those expectations, um, 
And if they do let you down, you let them know that you let me down. If they feel the same, you know, sort of recourse that you do, and they come back and they make make up for it, they're actually not going to want to revisit that 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 moment again. They they are they don't they are not going to want to feel that internal pain of letting letting someone down. And it's not just me. I mean, there are other people who obviously sit in leadership with me, but but just use myself an example as an example. Whereby fear is, in my opinion, short-lived because you can only take it for so long. And when you live in that, you, you start to resent the person and you start to resent living in that space. And then you individually start to resent yourself for dealing with it and you, you leave. So I, I, you know, that's my personal philosophy. It's, it's really based in wanting to create a culture where you know, no one wants to let anyone else down and we're in it together and um, we, we want to we create something that's unified and, and, and for that reason, it, it should last longer and be more sustainable. The question I save exclusively for all of my current and former Wyden Kennedy guests, moving a little bit further down the, the production line to when something is either done or close to done, do you know when something is done or are you someone who ever suffers from incessant tinkering? Uh, you're never done. You just run out of time. <laughs> you know? yeah. That's all. And, and I'm sorry. I wish I had a better answer, but it's true. You know, you, there's always something that you want to move and push. And look, that doesn't mean you can't overdo it and, and, and push it too far. Like any good painting, you got to know where, when the last stroke is, right? Uh, but I think, I, I think you end up, the good thing about this business is you always run out of time. <laughs> so, yeah. so, um, that's the way I look at it. One of my favorite quotes is from Lauren Michaels. He says, we don't go on because we're ready. We go on because it's Saturday at 11 o'clock. <laughs> that's right. That's Let's right. talk about selling ideas really quick. We touched on it a little bit about stylistically, you know, volume mm-hmm. of ideas versus, you know, bringing that one dart, but you know, ideas ultimately, regardless of your style, are, are, are only as good as our ability to sell them. Uh, what's your style when it comes to salesmanship? I know just the word salesmanship has a certain grossness to it, but I don't yeah. know that I can think of a better word. We are trying to sell ideas to our clients, um, whether we're positioning it that way or not. How mm-hmm. might someone describe your style in the room? Um, you know, I- that's hard because I've never really, you know, there's, I've never really considered myself having some kind of house style. I think I do have a way of uh, approaching the work, and there's an emotion that I'm going after with the work. I think my best work, um, it forces something on the inside that may be unexplainable at times. I think that's when I feel like, all right, I got something here. There's that there's that that sensation that just is at times indescribable. Um, I, I do believe in a high level of craft, and I think because I came up as a designer, um, you know, I'm, I'm I pay a lot of attention to space and form and color and and some and sometimes typography when it's when it's applicable. So I, I think those are those are things that I'm I'm probably uh, you know, deeper into, um, and, and, you know, and I think there's, I think the best work has a, 
has a cadence to it. You know, when you're in the edit and you're working on a film, um, you can't be formulaic because it's 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 jazz, right? There's a, there's just a, a rhythm to it, and the best editors will have a song in their head when they're cutting. So you want to have and create that same level of um, sort of interest and attention with, with the work to make sure that you know if this is something that you want to do. Hold on, my kids are knocking. That's right. Take a break. Two minutes, guys. Not right now. I'm on a call, kids. Two minutes, okay? Sorry about that. That's all right, man. We're, we're coming to the end here. If I can, I'll wrap it up in five minutes if that's cool. Is that all right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you've been in this game for a minute. You've been in some of the biggest rooms. Do you ever get nervous before client meetings anymore? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you know, the thing I learned from my, my dad, uh, who's a minister, right? He speaks in front of hundreds of people and does sermons. And you are not prepared unless you're nervous. Because that that level of nervousness is actually building chemicals inside of you to um, be at your most sort of aware and 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 punctual, be be your most aware and punctual self, right? You're on your toes when you're nervous. You're alert. Um, you're paying attention to things because there's this sort of uh, fight or flight reaction that just kind of chemically happens in your brain. So if I walk in and I'm too lax, um, it's not because I got it. It's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm probably not prepared for the moment as well as I should be. But when I go in and I have not too much nervousness, but just, just, just enough, you know, nervousness where I'm paying attention to the details and I'm, I'm paying attention to the room and I'm paying attention to how a client is, uh, their body language and how they're, how they're taking in what I'm saying. And, um, you know, the presentation goes better because I'm more alert and I'm more aware. Sometimes, uh, as you know, failure will set us up for a later success. Do you have a favorite failure in your career? Yeah, there's plenty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of the ones that I can tell you on this in this <laughs> this moment. Um, yeah, you know, <clears throat> you know, I've gone into meetings and and totally, uh, you know misread the brief and misread the room and, and came in with something that strategically was just just off. And uh, in those moments, I've said before, you know, and you can tell from the body language of the client, right? This is like, this is not going well. Uh, I've said before, like, you know what? I'm going to stop. Um, we may even have more ideas. I want to I ask you guys what you think. I think I know what you're feeling. Um, but what I'd rather do is come back because I've already gotten a sense that this work isn't right. And I want to have a follow-up conversation about why, but I think in this moment it might be better to give you your time back and for us to go back to the drawing board. Um, well, that's, yeah. a, that's a good segue to uh, the final three questions. We'll get through them here, get you back to your kids, but uh, uh, <laughs> ask them to all of my guests. Um, the first one is, what is the word or phrase of advertising jargon that makes your skin crawl the most? It's collaboration. And I'm going to tell you why. Because it's misused, right? That term, I think, started out with the best possible intentions, but has become, has turned into this ideology of groupthink. And I think what makes this business strong is that we have people in different segments 
different roles who do things very, very well. And they've chosen those roles for a reason. And when we do come together and collaborate, it's about bringing perspectives in, not to create one homogenous idea that is an amalgamation of seven people who chimed in and feel like their voice is in the work, but who can give you a real critique, thoughtful analysis, and help challenge and litmus test the work. That's collaboration. And so when I hear it, I immediately want to investigate what they mean by it because it can be dangerous if it's not used properly. All right. What is the most fucked up response you ever got from a client during a creative presentation of your work? Uh, I've had a client who had written a script and after we were done, wanted to present it to me and then asked me what I thought, (laughs) which was totally dismissive of all the things that we had presented. Uh, and he was a jerk anyway, but, um, and you know, he went off and hired someone to do it and on his own and, uh, you know, it didn't turn out. So that's no reflection on us. It was just like, he had it in his head anyway. So that's a great one. That one goes in the fucked up response hall of fame that you end your presentation only so that the client could present back his script to you that he already knows he's making. Uh, and the final, yeah, of course. The final question is called the one that got away, which is what is that one beloved idea that you could never quite sell that continues to either live in your your heart or just haunt you? Well, the really good ones I still have, and I'm not, I can't give those away because I'm going to make them one day, right? I'm not, <laughs> the really, really good ones are, are, are tucked away in a drawer. But there was a thing that we did when I was on the Jordan brand. Uh, and there was a spot um, that we did for Jordan brand called Maybe It's My Fault. And we actually went to Michael Jordan's childhood home and come to find out his next door neighbor had purchased it from James Jordan, Michael's father, and kept it completely intact from the refrigerator to the furniture to the, you know, the box TV that sits on the floor. Everything was still there. So we walked into literally a museum of Michael Jordan's childhood. And I just so happened to have brought a camera and just I mean, it's been a whole day just photographing everything. The backyard still had the basketball court that was dirt and the rims were still there that he played on. The garage where his dad used to repair cars was still there. There was still parts in there. It was, it was surreal. And, you know, mind you, this is you know, almost 40 years since, since you know, the, the family had left. And so we had taken all these photographs and we had this idea that we we're going to create this book um, about Michael to go with this film. And so we went through this arduous, we created these C prints and did all this, this work. And we chose the 23 prints that were going to go in this book. And, um, and so we presented it to Michael and he said, I can't do it. Why? He said, uh, he says the memories are too vivid and I can't do it. Oh. And I was, I, I totally got it, especially after what, you know, what happened with his father, but it was heartbreaking because what I knew was, his fans would want to see that so badly. I mean, his fans would have loved to see those images of his, you know, his humble and early beginnings. Well, so what's, that amazing, that what's amazing is you, you started that by saying you have too many ideas in your drawer that you're still going to make. And I hear that. And I think, you know, Michael was a way more closed off guy 10 years ago than he is now coming off the last dance and just sort of being, you know, more um, yeah. available culturally. 
man, yeah. I think you just told us an idea that actually could 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 live I, on really beautifully right now. I still got the I still got the prints. I still got the I still got the negs, the negatives. Well, Keith, uh, as I was preparing for this episode, I reached out to like you know four or five mutual friends of ours, and mm-hmm. just said, hey, like you know what to expect, and they all texted me back the same thing. And Keith is a great guy. And, uh, and I see why they said that after getting to spend some time with you, man, I've, I've enjoyed, um, your entire catalog of work throughout your career and, and have just really, uh, appreciated what you've, uh, what you've stood for in our industry. And, and it's been great to meet you and, uh, and we're rooting for you in this next chapter, man. I think the best is yet to come. Thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Cool, man. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Okay. You too. Okay, thank you so much to Keith Cartwright. I really enjoyed that. Thank you as always to JSM Music and the executive producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello. And thank you to all of you for continuing to listen and support the show. You know, uh, as we came into this year, I was sort of wondering where the show would go and there was some limitations based on my access to guests. And, you know, one silver lining of this crazy time for me is just the ability to reach out and connect with uh, my, my dream list of guests who previously uh, weren't accessible to me. So I'm really looking forward to keeping this show going in the months ahead. And I appreciate everybody's support. And I hope you'll continue to review it, rate it, share it with a colleague or friend and uh, keep the notes and messages of support coming because they, they really mean a lot to me. And uh, yeah, just thank you to everybody who's continued to support this show over the years. And until we talk again, peace.